can it be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. All right, my guest this week is Brent Grinna, the founder and CEO of Evertrue. Uh, Evertrue is a social donor management software platform that helps hundreds of higher education, independent school, and other nonprofit fundraising organizations track and engage alumni and donors. Evertrue participated in Techstars and was selected as a winner of Mass Challenge in 2011. The Bain Capital Ventures is their lead investor today, and their partner institutions include household names like Amherst, Williams, Colgate, Brown, Boston University, Phillips Andover, and Phillips Exeter. The business was born after Brent, who'd been fast-tracking as a venture capital and private equity investor, was asked to serve as an alumni volunteer for his undergraduate alma mater, Brown University. He found a system in desperate need of upgrade to 21st century technology and tactics and set out to bring exactly that to the education fundraising process that he cared deeply about. Now, the reason he cared so deeply was that access to higher education had changed the lives of both he and his brothers, who'd grown up on a rural farmland in far-flung corner of Iowa. Football and smarts were Brent's ticket to Brown, where he not only excelled, but served as captain of the varsity football team. After graduating, he spent four years in finance at William Blair and & Company and Madison Dearborn Partners, then earned his MBA with honors from the Harvard Business School. In this week's second segment, Brett and I talked about the people stuff that almost always ends up being the primary focus of the CEO, really at any stage of any business. I think fellow CEOs will relate to both the insights and the struggles we both shared in this aspect of the job, if not to solve them all, then at least to understand and maybe empathize a little bit. I consider Brent both a true friend and one of the most promising entrepreneurs in Boston. I think you'll enjoy listening in on our conversation, especially if you don't mind a couple ex-jocks taking apart the parallels of football and business. All right, so How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, and G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Here now, my conversation with Brent Grinna. Brent. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm great. I'm here at uh, Evertrue's Spectacular World Headquarters here on Congress Street in Boston. And it's been a very exciting day given the outcome of the Super Bowl. Yeah, so uh, Brent and I are talking on Monday after Super Bowl Sunday, I think one of the greatest athletic spectacles of all time. Unless they've seen any of our highlight films from college. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Um, really an amazing uh, thing. I, I just I was saying I feel like shit because I ate like shit yesterday and drank too much. But uh, really an amazing, um, amazing life experience, a life lesson for us and our children, I think. No doubt. No doubt. And uh, you might feel terrible, but you look great. Thanks. So looking forward Thanks. to this. All right. So, um, Brent, you know, I, I got to say, I, we've known each other for a while now, but I've, I'm excited to get to know you a little bit better. And, and, and let's I want to go back to 
to the very beginning back on a windy prairie um, in the Midwest. You know, where did you grow up? And, uh, and tell us a little bit about uh, your family. Absolutely. So I grew up on a farm uh, in northeast Iowa. I was the oldest of three boys. Uh, the farm that I grew up on, my dad grew up on, and it was my grandfather's farm. And uh, really just a simple rural upbringing uh, that was rooted mostly in being out on our farm and then also doing sports. And so I played a lot of sports and uh, played on the farm a lot, and there wasn't much else to do. So, you know, to a New England kid, and, and I think our audience is disproportionately Eastern, or at least coastal, you know, when I think of that life, like the image in my head is like Hoosiers, and I realize Indiana's not Iowa, but close enough. That's a joke. That's about right. Um, so how is it different from that? Um, obviously, it's forward, like you guys have electricity and shit, but like... You know, what's the biggest misconception that those of us who don't grow up in that environment have about what that life is like? I think it's just the the simplicity of it. They're really, I mean, I lived two hours from the nearest real airport. So uh, there were just fewer distractions, fewer possibilities. There were no, you know, weekend adventures to go skiing or to go somewhere on the Cape or... Uh, you know, there really just wasn't wasn't a lot going on. We didn't have a movie theater in our town. There was no McDonald's. It literally was just kids, you know, some sports, and not much else. But it sounds like you weren't, it's not like you were pining for those things. Like you occupied yourself in other ways. You don't even know that they exist. Yeah. So you wouldn't yeah. even right. want them or, or, or think about it. All you, all you know is kind of what you know. And... Um, and so for us, it was just, I mean, yeah, we lived 10 miles from the nearest town that didn't even have a McDonald's. When I was 14, I got a learner's permit because if you live on a farm, they let you start driving at the age of 14 right. by yourself. And so I'm driving a Ford F-150 as a 14-year-old <laughs> for 10 miles back and forth to school every day. And it was, it was awesome. What did your dad do? Uh, my dad has worked for the Iowa Department of Transportation um, as a project manager for uh, for 30 years. And did, you, did your mom work? My mom has always worked around education. So she was working uh, in an elementary school when uh, we were uh, growing up. She now works at Upper Iowa University. Uh, and so she's always been around education, which I think, um, you know, I should highlight, neither of my parents went to college. And so for them, it was always a huge dream for me and my brothers to be able to do that. Uh, and so they were always encouraging us, you know, to read and to make sure that we had time for studies. And even though um, we were in this really rural area, we were like the first family around to get the Internet, you know, to get access to AOL or whatever it was at the time. And so we always kind of had that as being uh, just a big focus. I know you're, you and your brothers are close. And, and uh, was the Grinna household like rambunctious, like breaking shit? Yes. Um, and like, you know, how do you think that that dynamic, um, you know, af affected you? What aspect of that kind of that fraternal rivalry and that sort of physical intensity? How is how do you think that affects you as a person? Well, I think that for me, as the oldest of three, it was always just uh, a real sense of responsibility, almost feeling like parental at times, which I still am like with my brothers, yeah. ask them, they'll tell you. And so I think that there was a huge 
just influence uh, being the oldest of the three, but we were we were always fighting, always getting hurt, always breaking something, and uh, ultimately uh, was fortunate to get recruited by Brown University to play football. Uh, and when I first got the letter in the mail from Brown, I definitely did not know what Brown University was, um, but was fortunate to to have that opportunity and uh, did a bunch of recruiting trips and ultimately uh, made the move to Providence in the fall of 2000. When you think about, you know, sports and that aspect, which has been a big part of your life, you know, as it has with me, particularly coming off of yesterday, um, you know, how, how do you think about the role of that set of experiences in shaping, you know, the person that you are today? Well, it was, um, I, I was never kind of the the most talented. Yeah, I was never the most gifted person athletically. Um, I was, you know, naturally, uh, you know, I was, I was talented, but I was never the most talented person. Right. And I think I tried compensating for that by just working really, really hard. And um, that I think is reflected, frankly, in some of the people who, who, who played in, in, in the game yesterday. I mean, this guy... You know, Jimmy Devlin from the Patriots played football with my brother, uh, also at Brown, and and Devlin was a defensive end at Brown University. Now he's got two Super Bowl rings as a fullback, which yeah. is a position he'd never played. Right. I always think about it as like, think of all of the Division One fullbacks who graduated the same year as Jimmy Devlin, who aren't playing fullback. Right, right, <laughs> right. And uh, and so. I think just kind of seeing the uh, the impact of, of that hard work, which frankly could compensate for a lack of raw natural talent, um, has been has been huge for me. My middle brother Brad played football at Holy Cross. He worked so hard to make that happen. Um, and and if Brad's listening, he would not admit that he has even less athletic talent, but he does. <laughs> but he still overcame that, worked like crazy, and and made it happen. And and then my youngest brother Blaine ended up playing football at Brown, and uh, he has way more talent than than both of us, which was very frustrating and still is when we play our pickup games. But um, but it was just cool being you know one sort of being on a team, building some great friendships in that setting, working really really hard in pursuit of a goal, and then ultimately it was a ticket for th- all three of us to go to college. Yeah, which is yeah. amazing. You know, it's, those are the friends of my lifetime as well. So I'm also the first to go to college and, and some parallels there. And it, it is those relationships. It's the mental toughness. It's, it's, it's remarkable how much, it, how much it impacts you, you know, I think. Yeah. Um, all right, so you get to Brown. What was that like? When you, when you hit the ground there, do you feel prepared after you start to get a feel of, of what the expectations are? Or were you like, holy shit? You know, I, I would say that it was... Um I was just so unprepared for the whole college journey and that it wasn't, um, you know, I didn't have friends. I didn't have family members who'd gone off and gone away to college. And so I just didn't have exposure to what a, you know, liberal East Coast, right, top tier education is, what that community is like. And I was really, really um, just, just unprepared. But I got thrown into it on the football team, which at least got me around another hundred people who were had, you know, different backgrounds and, and viewpoints, but we were all um, on a team. And so that was, that helped me really get up to speed. Um, but just being uh, just everything from, from how talented 
the, the kids were, how much people knew, how much stronger, in most instances, their high school preparation had been, both uh, academically and athletically. And right. really, for the first time in my life, I was a, a big fish in a very small pond growing up, and, uh, and just sort of being thrown into that was, was a pretty humbling experience on all fronts. Yeah, healthy, but yeah. Uh, definitely challenging and um, forces you to kind of reframe your reality a Absolutely. little bit. Um, did you read uh, Hillbilly Elegy? No. Well, you got to read it. It's, okay. um, it's a great book. It's, a, it's about uh, this guy, J.D. Vance, and, and he, grew up in, he grew up in Appalachia. It's actually a different um, circumstance, but among some sort of dysfunctional cultural behaviors, very different from uh, the Midwest. But um, he ends up at Yale Law School, and, and uh, it's, it's his journey and how different that world yeah. is. And I just, there's two chapters where he's talking about the learning curve and how, and what a sort of culture shock it was that I found fascinating. I think you really absolutely uh, enjoy it. Um, all right, so um, you get through Brown, you do pretty well there. Yeah. And uh, how do you think about what's going to be next for you? So look, I'm I'm at Brown, and one of the cool things about where I grew, grew up, which I should have mentioned, is that it it um, while it was a rural town in sort of the middle of nowhere. There was a tremendous amount of immigration to my town. Uh, in the late 80s, a group of Hasidic Jews from Brooklyn bought a defunct meatpacking plant in my town, and they came in and they created one of the largest kosher meatpacking plants in the country. Now, I guarantee before they did that, I didn't know what kosher meant. Right. But they did, and with that, they recruited workers from all over Latin America, from all over the former Soviet Union, and so we had kids coming in sixth grade from Russia, from Ukraine, from Mexico, from Guatemala, into this town that was, you know, probably 99%, if not 100% white Christian up until that moment, ended up being one of the fastest growing towns in the United States in the 90s, um, and, uh, and ended up just being this real incredible melting pot. So for me, that was just a neat opportunity in the middle of all of these cornfields to get exposure to people from, from different backgrounds, different languages, different religions. And that was, I think, something that ultimately uh, has shaped who I am in, in many ways. But when I got to Brown, I thought, okay, um, I've had this, this exposure to this, this, this broader group, and I really got into <coughs> Spanish and got very involved with the, um, the uh, Mexican immigrant community in my town. Uh, and so I'd gotten pretty comfortable with Spanish. And I decided to, to major in international relations at Brown with a focus on Spanish. And so I ended up going on to study Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian, really embracing the language side of things, which for me, it was like every language was an opportunity to make relationships with millions of new people, which, sure. was, which was very cool. And um, funny, I feel that way about food. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's another way to get there. Yeah. Um, but, but ultimately ended up studying... Uh, international relations and these languages, which when you then are sort of in your junior year of college, where does that all lead you? It's not totally clear. It was very fun and and got to learn a lot and meet a bunch of great people, Um, but ultimately started getting connected to a couple of mentors through the Brown Football Association. So uh, a couple of guys, a guy named John Skinner, uh, uh, who was in Boston, and a guy named Mike Lascott, who was in Chicago, started helping me with my resume, helping me with just understand kind of the, the possibilities of how you might package up that kind of degree and language and, and these things 
with the athletic experience. I ended up being captain of the team my senior year. Uh, and they ultimately recommended that I consider heading down the, the more of a finance path, which is not something that I had any familiarity with. Um, but they suggested that getting you know, into an analyst program at one of the investment banks could be a great way to sort of really learn, work hard, uh, spend a couple of years getting exposure to a lot of things that I wasn't very familiar with in the world of business. And, uh, and they really guided me in that effort. Um, ultimately led to two opportunities, one at Lehman Brothers in New York and the other at a firm called William Blair in Chicago. And I hadn't really heard of William Blair prior to uh, getting to know these guys. Um, but ultimately, when I went out there, a bunch of good Midwesterners kind of felt like a good bridge for me to the world of, of, of finance, but rooted in, uh, in a bit more of a Midwestern culture. So I also just had tremendous foresight about what would happen to Lehman Brothers a few years later. So I uh, Brilliant. made the move Seeing to, around uh, a corner to, there. To, to William Blair in Chicago, yeah. And uh, was it those things? What did you find when you hit the ground there? It was. I mean, uh, it was a, uh, you know, you showed up. Uh, we, we showed up with, I think it was 14 analysts in our class, um, all of whom had gone to, to good schools and, and we're, we're heading in this together. And you just start drinking from the fire hose. I mean, I didn't know anything about the stuff that we were going to be expected to do, except enough to get through an interview, basically. And uh, we started with the Series 7 and the Series 63 and all of these different exams. And um, it was just, it was so overwhelming. And then it was like two weeks in, they put me on a plane to go help with a follow-on offering for a public company in the medical device space. And I didn't know what any of those words I just said meant. <laughs> Yet here I am showing up at this meeting to go through you know, all of the underwriting activities with some of the other investment banks. And you're just there and you have to figure it out. And you know, being able to, to get a seat at those kind of tables so early on in my career, it was just in hindsight. It's kind of ridiculous, but yeah. it was it was really really helpful. So it's a path you would you would recommend if you're counseling a kid from college, like you know. Yeah, I mean, I think look, you you get exposure to you're working with really smart people. I mean, the people that I worked with were just incredibly smart, driven, hardworking, and uh, and you get exposure to different industries, to different sizes of companies. And if you don't have that exposure. I don't know how else you kind of get that exposure without joining um, a program like that. So are there, you know, negatives to that work? And some of it was, was, was really, really tough. I mean, the, the nights were very, very late. Yeah, you're a real and Excel jockey in you, that job. You, Excel jockey, you know, odds are you gain a bunch of weight, not good weight. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, but all that said, it was, it was a great experience. Yeah. yeah. How long were you there? I was there for two years, two-year program. And, uh, and so, you know, if you're not too familiar with investment banking, in a lot of ways, it's like, it's like real estate. It's like being a real estate agent. Somebody um, wants to sell their house. You represent them. You market the house. You get the best price for the house that you can. A lot of the work that I was doing on the investment banking side was like that, uh, except instead of marketing a house, we're marketing a company. Entrepreneur comes to you. They want to sell the company. We'll help you tell the story. We'll help you market it. We'll help you sell it. So that's sort of the sell-side investment banking work. After two years, common path would be to go and do um, uh, 
private equity would be one of the paths. And that was the path that I ultimately decided on. And that really is just the move of going from being the person selling the house to being the home buyer. And so on the private equity side, we'd be getting pitches from people like uh, William Blair about companies that we might want to buy. And, uh, and I think the main difference for me is that when you are um, marketing the house, you want to really, you kind of want to understand the foundation and you kind of want to understand when, you know, it was last painted and when it was last updated. But ultimately, you're not on the hook for all of that. Whereas when you're buying the house, you really want to understand that and you want a home inspector and you want to find all of those possible pitfalls because when you buy the house, it's your house. Right. And the level of rigor and sort of financial analysis that happens on that side of the business just far outweighs anything that I'd seen to date and um, uh, on, on the investment banking side. And it was just a whole new level of just diligence and, and understanding of how businesses work and trying to find those, those pitfalls so that uh, you don't close on the house and then immediately have buyer's remorse. What lessons stick out in your mind as you looked, you know, more deeply into what separated a good business from a bad one? Well, I think there were uh, certain things around, look, people, it's always people. And I think one of the challenges that I have in the, in the private equity uh, business and maybe even the venture business to a certain extent is whenever you ask somebody, what do they look for when they're trying to invest in a company? People tends to be uh, kind of the, the first focus, which, which is easy to say, but it's really hard to actually get it right. Um, and so that piece was, was huge, just really seeing the importance of management. And granted, I was working with companies that were at a much later stage than we are now. And so it's, it's much more kind of senior executive management uh, in, a, in a scaled enterprise versus a scaling enterprise. Um, but, but that was a big part of it. And then I think really the piece that, that isn't too much a part of my, my day-to-day now is just the, the, the financial engineering aspects of, of large private equity and, and really what you can do with leverage and why that matters and why it isn't always a bad thing, but it can certainly be a bad thing. Um, you know, it's, it's fine for us to use a loan to buy a house. Nobody feels bad about that. But if you use too much debt to buy the house, bad things can happen. And that was happening while I was in the private equity world as well. And so really just understanding how far you can push it before it's too far and, and, and how significant the ramifications are if you get that wrong was, was pretty eye-opening. The good thing about those two jobs is that they were both two-year gigs. And so it was sort of defined. You'd come in as a program, you'd end as a program. So you didn't have the sort of, it wasn't very open-ended. But coming into uh, the banking and the private equity world, I didn't know much about kind of what happened next. I barely knew about what was happening that week. Um, and as I, as I spent more time in that industry, though, just so many of the people I was surrounded by ha- had MBAs because it was sort of almost a right. requirement Default. to get some of those jobs. Yeah. And so I went from definitely not knowing what MBA stood for when I started working to pretty much being working exclusively with MBAs during those four years. And so when you start to meet those people, they become your mentors, they start guiding you, you learn more, uh, and you decide, you know, you're, you're influenced by that. And so for me, all of a sudden, I went from 
not knowing what that was or thinking much about it to kind of obsessing over what that, you know, MBA program might be. Right. Um, and I felt like for, for me, the reason that I wanted to, to pursue the MBA was I had had this really interesting time where I was doing all of this sort of language and foreign studies work in college. And then I go into this finance world where I'm not doing any of that stuff. And then it was sort of an opportunity to say, okay, well, what's the next chapter? And my hope actually heading into business school is that there might be a way to marry my interest in international business and language with some of the investing work that I had done. And so that was what I wrote my essays about. And that was what I was really focused on, on trying to do. What was your experience at HBS like? Uh, it was incredible in that I was way more prepared mentally. Um, uh, I, I just, when I showed up at college, I felt like I was unprepared athletically, unprepared academically, sink or swim, luckily swam. Okay, that was great. I felt like going to business school, it was almost another shot at it where I actually felt prepared academically. I felt prepared professionally. I felt like I could um, contend. And just just having a little bit more experience and confidence was, was huge for me. Um, but then the other thing that I just loved about it was that, you know, something like 40% of the students were not from the United States. So it was this, you know, Brown was diverse and there's a, you know, diverse in different ways, but most of the students were still American students. And so being in an environment where it was really that global um, was amazing. Yeah. That, my early memories of it um, are very similar. Um, I mean, Cornell opened up my world you know, gave me much more of a national view, having been an Italian kid from Rhode Island. Um, but but HBS was like the whole world. And I remember the second night with my section and, and the Russian guys drinking tequila and the Mexican guys drinking vodka. And we were all kind of celebrating that, yeah. you know, because we had things that made us feel able to relate to each other, yeah. but we were so culturally different. Um, I, I almost remember feeling some sadness on reflection two years later at how kind of homogenous we had become in our outlook, you know, that place sort of, uh, it changes the way you think, um, in ways that are, that are, you know, helpful, but also almost a little troubling in a way, you know, you know know what I mean? I would say that people, if you had a certain viewpoint or philosophy or just a stance on an issue, that it didn't seem like people changed that much during that time. But what changed is the ability for uh, you to have a conversation with someone. The civil nature of the discourse there, just that even if you really vehemently disagreed, opposed somebody else's view, you figured out a way to have a civil conversation about that and to still be able to go out and have your tequila or have your vodka afterwards. And right. so that's the piece that that I think people just got really good at having fierce debate with the exact same information at their disposal, coming to completely different conclusions, and then being able to be friends afterwards, right. which is really important in business, important in politics. And uh, that, that, for me, was, was something that I really... Enjoyed, you know, fierce debate, but not taking it personal. Right. So, uh, what did you want to do when you when you graduated? Yeah. So I, I literally wrote about wanting to be like 
a venture capital, private equity investor somewhere in Latin America, I thought that would be a very cool thing. Um, of course, I did get married right before business school, and I'm not sure my wife ever thought that was as cool of an idea as I did. <laughs> but I uh, got to know a professor who ran a venture capital fund in Monterey, Mexico, immediately went, spent a bunch of time with him, did like a trek down there, and got the job. So I worked in Monterey, Mexico as a venture capitalist intern, essentially, for uh, the summer between my first and my second year. It was amazing. I literally got to do finance and Spanish, which was kind of my whole life story up great, until great that point. And it was, it was just a blast. Uh, it was a fund called Ignea down in, uh, down in Monterey. Right around that time, my fifth reunion was rolling around for Brown. And somebody had reached out to see if I would be willing to help participate in my fifth reunion fundraising campaign. And I said yes. And the process that unfolded introduced me to some of the challenges that we're pursuing here at Evertrue. It was really the seed uh, that, that sparked the, the idea. And, um, and so on one hand, I was kind of pursuing this finance, global, private equity, venture capital opportunity while volunteering for my school. And, and that was kind of where the, the, the fork in the road, if you will, yeah. For the benefit of people who don't know, uh, what is Evertrue and what problem does it solve yeah. for colleges and universities? Yeah, so look, I mean, I, I couldn't have attended Brown without the support of donors. And I didn't know what philanthropy was. I didn't know about capital campaigns. I didn't know just how much work goes into creating access for kids like me to go to college. But what I did know is that when I got my financial aid form in the mail, it would work and we could do this. And that was a life-changing thing for me. And so fast forwarding to my reunion campaign, when somebody reached out to see if I would help, my answer was absolutely. Like anything I can do to help fundraise, to help create access for kids like me to go to college, that's a no-brainer. And so while the cause was noble, the process that unfolded was really, uh, there, were, there was minimal technology, and, and, and the technology that did exist was really slowing things down, not speeding it up. So basically, I went on to learn that there's this industry of, of, of higher education development that raises over $40 billion a year, and it's basically a sales and marketing business. They've got fundraisers, they've got alumni relations professionals, that's sales, that's marketing, uh, and everything in between all with the goal of building relationships and, and not just a short-term relationship, but keeping a relationship with you for, you know, from the time you graduate until the time you die and, and wanting to be able to support you along the way. And when I saw all of the innovation that was happening in the for-profit sales and marketing world and then looked at that relative to how fundraising databases worked, how the technology worked, there was just a massive disconnect. And so the punchline on Evertrue is... How do we look at, at, at uh, uh, for-profit sales and marketing and apply it to this vertical so that if you're a fundraiser planning a trip to go meet football players in Las Vegas, you've got an easy way to do that. If you're trying to discover who your next potential capital campaign supporters are, you've got an easy way to do that. If you're trying to run an annual fund appeal, uh, you want to create an experience for your donor that feels as easy to transact on as you might with Amazon, and that is just not the case at most institutions today and so we've got a suite of products that are really designed to bring that for-profit thinking to this nonprofit sector. How many years into Evertrue? Yeah, so uh, seven years. Seven uh, years. Since, since I, I started the first business plan contest application at, at HBS. Yeah. If, if you could go back and t 
talk to, you know, seven years ago, Brent Grinna and yeah. give him some advice, um, what would you tell him? I would say keep the passion and enthusiasm and commitment that you have for this space and for this idea, but surround yourself with a couple of people who can really uh, point you in the right direction. And I probably would have surrounded myself with uh, somebody from the industry, you know, really looking at somebody out there who is a dom domain expert, that I, sh I had those relationships informally, but I should have formalized a couple of those right. relationships. If I could go back and create the advisory board, I should have done that seven years ago. We're literally right now working on a customer advisory board. Right. How has it taken us seven years to do that? We <clears throat> made up for it informally, but having a couple of folks um, formally would have, been, would have been great. And I would have tried to better understand. You know, I saw a problem through a very narrow lens of me as a volunteer, but if I had taken a deep breath, potentially with those advisors, and really better understood their whole business, I think it might have pointed us in different directions sooner that might have allowed us to solve more acute problems sooner uh, that I think would have been been healthy, uh, you know, from a business perspective. I think there are entrepreneurs that come at it from both sides. You know that that they're they see a solution and they they you know almost they try to become more familiar with the problem, and then there's people that grow up in the problem. They become intimate with the nuances of the way that problem is. You know, and it, it it sounds like a lot of the what brought you into this was was you know an opportunity that you could only see through the lens of of objectivity, right? You had some objectivity in looking in looking into this quote unquote industry. You yeah, know, it's not for profit, but yeah. But, um, you know, if you had grown up in it, it would have been normal. You know, right. it would have been just so uh, you need. No, and I was just with somebody the other day, a customer who said, we don't I don't want you getting too much industry experience on your team because then you're just going to, you know, guide us to do what we've already been doing. Right. Right. You know, we love that you don't have that kind of preconceived notion of how things work to inform how you design things and so forth. So it's a balance. Um, but I think that would have been that would have been healthy overall. For whatever reason, Brent Grinna is a natural leader. And the best definition of leadership I've ever heard is is really a simple one that a leader in the end is someone people will follow. What I like about this definition is that it implies not only a, a level of faith, but a level of trust that another person has your best interests at heart. In part because of this, I think good leaders focus uh, a lot of time and energy on, on the people stuff, on, on whether people are in roles where they can be successful, on whether they're getting what they need to be satisfied and fulfilled. Uh, and Brent chose for our second topic to talk about people, about the people issues, about the people stuff that in the end uh, always become the primary focus of the CEO. The number of times I hear a startup founder refer to their family, or their company as a family, welcome to the family, it happens all the time. I used to do it. I try not to do it anymore because of what you were just hinting at. The, the challenge for me is, as I was talking about um, earlier, being on teams my whole life, being on, whether it was in high school, whether it was in college, 
my whole thing was always, if you're on my team, you're on my team, and I'm going to do whatever I can to help you succeed, to do the most uh, that I can to support you. And if you give me that loyalty and the hard work, then I will give you back a spot on the team. That was who I was. You know, I was the senior that was the nicest to the freshmen. I wanted them to be a part of it and to understand that 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 was how we would run this team. And I think I brought a lot of that to Evertrue, especially in our, you know, in our early years, but even I think today to a certain extent, which is if you were in a spot here, then I feel like it's my job to give you my all to, to do everything that I can to help you succeed. And if you don't, then it's my fault, not yours. Um, problem is that's not always the case. Right. But that's how I think and how I act. And I think sometimes um, I make decisions or, or don't make decisions, frankly, based on that more college team, amateur team, if you will, mentality uh, versus how would you run a pro team. And that's something that I and I think a lot of other founders wrestle with. It's a struggle. You know, I, I was, a, you know, the first time I was a CEO, I was, I was about 28 and... And I had a similar sensibility, you know, and I think I do. I do think you get that from from growing up in a team sport, and and um, you know, um, the culture you grow up in very different from the one I did in terms of you know Italians versus Iowans, but a lot of similar structure in terms of a sense of community and loyalty to individuals, right? Yeah. Relationships, um, and so that was a, that was a hard thing. I remember, you know. One of the most impactful books I've ever read was a book called Jack Welch Speaks, and it was just like him talking about different um, ideas. And one of the ideas was he told the story of, of he had been very close with Jeff Immelt, and he had sort of mentored Jeff, and Jeff had been you know one of his sort of rock star guys, and, and eventually Jack Welch put Jeff in a role that was a, a, a huge role and a, a big stretch for him in a way, but he had faith in him. And he, he sat down with Jeff. He put his hand on his shoulder and he said, Jeff, I want you to know two things. The first is that I love you and I, that there's no one who you know, wants you to succeed in this more than me. Um, and, and I'll do everything I can to help you, you know, do this job. It's number one. Number two is if you can't do it, I'll take you out and I won't feel bad about it. And I want to make sure you don't feel bad about it either. It just struck me, like at that level, at the Jack Welsh level, right, clearly operating at a different frequency than a normal yeah. manager. But number one is he had made friends with that idea. Mm -hmm. And his way of diffusing it was to, was to put it on the table and set that expectation. Yeah. And I just, I, that was profoundly insightful to me, you know. Which is something that I think most of the, the coaches that I've ever had have done without hesitation. Right. You know, you're on the team in that case, but it doesn't mean that you're starting. Right. And if you are starting, you can just as easily be back on the bench. And I think that's where applying a little bit more of that, you know, being able to ruthlessly field the best team and not feel bad about who's starting and who's on the bench is is something that I think most most coaches just do by their very nature, but it's a lot harder when it's, you know, careers and, uh, or at least it feels like it's harder. Maybe sure. it shouldn't be. Yeah. You know, that struggle at, in the end, it's an awesome responsibility that you're having to make a decision that's going to affect somebody else's life. And, and that decision boils down to a judgment about whether they can get there or they can't. Yeah. You know, how do you think about that? What are the, what are the telltale signs someone is not going to make it 
and that and that letting them continue to struggle and fail in this role, you know, makes you feel better, but does them no service. Yeah, I think the the most important piece for me is that I feel like people are genuinely committed, genuinely passionate to what we are doing, because most people, when they hear about my business and what we work on, they aren't excited about those things. And that goes the same for your business and almost every business out there. So the question is, how do you find the ones who are, who really are fired up about what you're working on, the problems you're trying to solve, your industry? And sometimes people people will get excited about an opportunity or convince themselves that they're excited about an opportunity because you have to. It's interviewing 101, right? Like how do you show genuine enthusiasm and understanding of, of, of what you know, the person on the other side of the table is working on. But unfortunately, that means that sometimes I think people, uh, you know, earn opportunities where they just genuinely don't have that, uh, that passion or they thought that they did, but they really just didn't. And so for me, it's like that piece where if you have somebody who is genuinely fired up and that for me is, is just really important because then I can we can get you training, we can get you, you know, you can go to intelligently and get manager training, we can get sales training, like there's lots of kind of core coaching and skill development you can do, but I cannot, I have not figured out the way to do skill development on attitude, and oftentimes attitude is linked to just genuine enthusiasm for the problems that are being solved, and so that for me is, is the piece, and then I think once you go beyond that, that initial assessment, um, it gets harder. So, so in your experience where, where there have been problems, it sounds like they've been more, you know, if you will, they're failures of will as opposed to failures of skill. Yeah, I think it's, it's failure and the, the failure of will typically, typically being linked to not a genuine interest in, in the problems that we're trying to solve. And, uh, I think that we've gone through periods where we, um, we overvalued sort of experience in some of the tactical aspects of running a company. You know, the experience of running support, the experience of running uh, marketing, sales—like you name it, across the board. Um, but if you have a you know an experienced person who isn't genuinely connected to your market and the problems you're trying to solve and your culture and your people, you may have a very experienced person that is that is not. A fit, and so the question is, how do you find the experienced people that also share the passion, um, or how do you find the people with the passion and coach them up so that they're the experienced people? Right. You know, I I know you're a student of um, startup folklore, like myself, and it's interesting as I reflect on um, all the stories about all the startups. Um, you know, there are always stories of a group of people that came together, united in common cause, and kind of figured it out. Yeah. It, you know, there's never like, oh, and then we brought in this marketing guy who was fucking amazing, and he he taught us how to do marketing. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. it's always but that, in the lore, right? That's not the lore piece of it, though. Yeah. But there was always that person. Yeah. Yeah, but but I, but I think that that person is more remarkable in the way that they figure out something new, as opposed to the way that they bring some prior expertise into a new environment yeah. and create value. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about, um, you know, when I talk about marketing, you know, think about like what Volpe did at uh, at HubSpot, you know. Those guys figured it out. 
you know, they, they had experience, yeah. you know, Halligan had experience and like, yeah. um, but they, they had to create that. They had to create yeah. something new, yeah. you know? No. And I think that, you know, that's an example where, um, because oftentimes when you just, you know, read the VC blogs or talk to investors, yeah, you know, Hey, you're going to have to turn out the team every two years at each next new phase. It's just, it's sort of, people just say that. But then you look at a place like HubSpot where they had and have people who've had long runs there and they've gotten to a very exciting place. Um, so it can be done both ways. But rarely do you hear the sort of investor lore around, yeah, my recommendation would be your founding team should just run this thing through IPO and then maybe even for a few <laughs> years after. Like, that never happens. Yeah. No one ever recommends doing that. Yeah. Yet, when you look around town, there's more than one example where people, right. that core early group has been able to scale, which gets me really excited to know that it's possible. Yeah. You know, not just for me, but for others. Um, but... While it's possible, it maybe it's so improbable that it never gets yeah. uh, included in the stock set of recommendations you might get from investors. But it comes from in the formula for that outcome. There is number one, as you say, you got to be passionate about the mission, right? Because you're going to be doing this a long time, and and you know it it sucks. No, like it always sucks a little. Like no matter what it is, right? There's days when it sucks. Yep. Even if you're doing the thing you've always wanted to do since you were a kid. No doubt. There's going to be a fucking Tuesday afternoon where you're like, this just sucks, right? So you got to have that. And then you need people who are, you know, who are smart, who are adaptable, who are, you know, team oriented. Like it's, it's, um, yes. You know, you're looking for those qualities. You know, we were talking about the game, you know, just to keep coming back to that. A guy like Edelman, you know, even a guy like Brady, these people are not inherently, they have no inherent gift. Like, a, you yeah. know, it's not like a Julio Jones where that guy's touched by God in some way, yeah. you know. Um, it's that it's that they have some set of qualities. Character, you know, is a good word, you know. Yes. And so you're really looking for that, I guess, in that in the early stage. Those, those human qualities are fundamental to a team. That's kind Totally. Of- and I think you find it in the early stage because it doesn't usually make sense for people to join you on this journey. When I think about some of the early team members, many of whom are still here, the offers that they accepted, you know, the time that they chose to join, it's kind of crazy in hindsight. But it was that character and commitment that caused them to kind of take the irrational step of getting on board. And I think it's that character and commitment that makes me excited about continuing to grow with them you know, six, seven years later. Um, and I think once you see that character and commitment, when it's not there, it is so glaringly obvious. When you think about leading a team like that, yeah, what do you owe them? Like, what's your responsibility to them? Is it, is it really about making the goals clear? Is it about fairness and transparency? How do you, how do you think about your obligation to that team um, in this role? Look, I, I think that I often say to some of the folks that I've, that I've gotten to know through the um, Startup Institute program, you know, when, they're, when investors invest in a company, they talk about the people, the opportunity, you know, the market context, and then the specific deal dynamics usually. Like there's some iteration of that that every investor tends to, to use. And they are so diligent about making that assessment. And I think that when people are joining a company – 
they are far less diligent about making that assessment, except instead of it being an investor's money, it's your life that right. you're putting into it. And so when I'm meeting people, it's like, look, really scrutinize the people. You know, is this a management team you want to be around? Like, you should be thinking about this market opportunity. Don't just take it at the entrepreneur's word. Like, go really dig into all of that. And then, you know, obviously fight for your deal and all of that kind of stuff as well. Um, but then when people show up, my, my thing for them is I, I just want to give you everything. You are giving me your life. You're giving me more time than you are probably going to be giving your spouse or, or partners um, for the foreseeable future. And uh, I got to give back to you a great work environment. I want you to be around smart, fun, passionate people. And I want you to know that I genuinely, you know, if there's a problem, like I will work hard to fix it and uh, don't, don't take my word for it you know I'll, I'll let my actions speak louder than my words and I need to give you fair compensation and uh, and if I give you all those things uh, I need you to give me you know your all and the results and um, if if that mutual trade-off keeps keeps working for five years or ten years then fantastic and if it works for you know five months or not at all then that's the case sometimes as well but if I feel like I've given it my all that I set the context and created the opportunity and given the direction. Meet me in the middle and we can make this thing work for a while. You know, I still encounter people um, in my life who view leadership as, as some kind of perk, as some kind of reward. Uh, when every leader I've ever known has viewed it as an awesome responsibility. Uh, Brent Grinna clearly in the latter camp dramatically increasing Evertrue's probability of outsized success. Um, wish him the best. All right. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Be sure and subscribe. If you haven't, give us some love on uh, iTunes. Uh, help us spread the word. Thanks for sticking around, and we will see you next week.